Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 498. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series, our guest today is author, historian H.W. Brands. H.W. Brands will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates program November 20th, 2020, and the title of his presentation is The Zealot and the Emancipator, which is the title of H.W. Brands' new book, which we will be discussing today here on the show. In the mid-19th century, although abolitionists had been working peacefully to end slavery for decades, the most they had achieved was containing its spread in the expanding republic. Then, in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act reversed even that, opening two new states to slavery, along with a huge fight at Harper's Ferry in Virginia. The prisoner raised himself on his elbow and picked up his pen. The effort stabbed his side and stole his breath. Quote, my dear wife and children, everyone, he wrote, I suppose you have learned before this by the newspapers that two weeks ago today, we were fighting for our lives at Harper's Ferry. John Brown shifted and tried to get comfortable. The wounds to his head had begun to heal, though they still looked a fright. But the gash in his side caused him searing pain. If he lay quietly and breathed softly, he could almost forget the saber thrust that had nearly killed him. Yet the slightest shifting brought the bloody moment back. In all his life, he had never spent so much time immobile. He supposed being in jail had its blessings. That he was in jail and not in a grave was a minor miracle. John Brown believed in miracles. He believed in the God of the Old Testament, the author of miraculous sea partings and towering pillars of fire, the God of the New Testament, of quotidian wonders like multiplying loaves and fishes, he found less compelling. John Brown believed that God spoke to men. He believed God had spoken to him. God had commanded him to make war on the great wickedness of his country, slavery. John Brown had heeded the call and traveled to Kansas, where he had fought the agents of the slave power. He had come to Virginia to advance the struggle. And now, in the waning autumn of 1859, he lay on a cot in a cell in Charlestown, the county seat for Harper's Ferry. He hadn't told his wife his plans. Better she not know the risks he was taking. She would have heard eventually. Yet after what had happened, he assumed she had learned the news from the papers. She might not know she had lost two sons. In any case, she should hear it from him. He wrote, during the fight, Watson was mortally wounded, Oliver killed. The pain of the writing compelled him to stop every few sentences. He would add more later. That, of course, is our guest today, author, historian H.W. Brands, reading from his new book, The Zealot and the Emancipator. In our interview today, H.W. Brands and I will discuss the complicated New Englander John Brown, who was a charismatic and deeply religious man who'd heard the God of the Old Testament speaking to him, telling him to destroy slavery by any means, including the sword. Meanwhile, in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln was an ambitious lawyer and failed politician who believed that slavery, while surely a sin, 
was guaranteed in the Constitution. The only way to fight it was by political means. Drawing on his new book, The Zealot and the Emancipator, historian H.W. Brands offers a dual portrait of Brown and Lincoln as men with profoundly different views on how moral people must respond to our democracy's most extreme injustice by incremental change or by radical upheaval. H.W. Brands also talks to us about how that historical reckoning finds relevance in today's political climate. H.W. Brands holds the Jack Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. H.W. Brands has written more than a dozen biographies and histories, two of which, The First American and The Traitor to His Class, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show author, historian H.W. Brands. Dr. H.W. Brands, welcome to the program. My pleasure. It's great to talk to you. This is an exciting subject. We're going to be talking about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation that uh, revolves around the book that you've just written, The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. I wonder if you'd tell us just a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, and in particular, how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience. We're all using Zoom these days, and and so it's going to be great to hear from you and uh, maybe tell us how you'll how you'll take Zoom and uh, tell us more about the the book. Well, I confess that I'm pretty old fashioned in the classroom. I have actually gotten to the point where. I use PowerPoint or the equivalent mm-hmm. to show slides, mm-hmm. but for the most part, I talk. And in fact, on Zoom, I tend to talk. So I'm going to be talking. I'm going to be talking about my book. I'm going to be talking about what caused me to write it and what I consider to be the, the timeless questions that the experiences of John Brown and Abraham Lincoln raised in their day and what they might say to us today. The book is excellent. Again, titled The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. I've got a copy of it right here in my hands, and it's getting great reviews online. I thought it was fascinating because it really alternates perspectives between Abraham Lincoln and John Brown uh, by chapters. And I thought that was kind of an interesting tack to take. But I, I wonder if you'd tell us about maybe what these two men, Abraham Lincoln and John Brown, what did they have in common? And maybe they were more at odds. Lincoln, who is not an abolitionist, he evolves uh, regarding slavery. He's certainly someone who um, viewed slavery as a sin, thought guaranteed in the Constitution, but the fight was uh, via political means. John Brown, more violence-oriented. So maybe tell us about these two men. The thing that John Brown and Abraham Lincoln shared was a conviction that slavery was evil. It was wrong. It was bad policy. It was a sin against God's will. The difference, however, lay in what they chose to do about it. And in fact, the reason I pair the two, the reason I wrote the book, was that I think that for every generation of people, of men and women in democracies, where they have an opportunity to influence government and laws. For every generation, there comes a moment when good men and women have to decide what to do about things they consider to be wrong. Uh, It could be simply bad policy. It could be downright evil. Uh, 
So I grew up and I was a college student in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. And one of the overriding issues of the day was the Vietnam War. What do you mm-hmm. do about the Vietnam War? I thought the Vietnam War was wrong. So, and I knew a lot of people who did. What do you do about it? In the case of slavery, was the great evil of John Brown and Abraham Lincoln's day. They both agreed that slavery was wrong, but what to do about it was what separated them. John Brown believed that slavery was so wrong that it justified almost any action a person could take, almost any action he could take, up to and including lethal violence and an effort to foment a servile insurrection, a slave war for the slave's freedom. That was John Brown. Abraham Lincoln was no less convinced of the evil of slavery, but he believed that emancipation had to come under the Constitution, under the laws of the United States. Now, this was partly a matter of temperament. John Brown was a very religious man. Abraham Lincoln was not. So Abraham Lincoln could not refer to this higher law and say, okay, that justifies this. It was also, well a matter of the fact that Abraham Lincoln was a politician. And he was a lawyer and a politician. He had chose this career path because he believed that that was the way humans advanced. That's the way democracy, that was the way freedom advanced. And while John Brown believed that emancipation, abolition, which was instantaneous emancipation, took precedence over everything, Abraham Lincoln put emancipation below the Constitution. Because he believed, first of all, that in a democracy, you have to obey the law. Once you throw aside the law, you've lost everything. But also because he believed that that was the more effective route to emancipation. Abraham Lincoln thought abolitionists like John Brown were not doing any good. And in fact, were probably doing ill for the slaves themselves, but also for the prospect of eventually ending slavery itself. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the ill, uh, certainly for those who are familiar with John Brown, will know of Harper's Ferry. I live in Northern Virginia and uh, not too far away from Harper's Ferry, uh, the federal arsenal uh, then. And um, I have a couple questions for you about, about John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Why did he pick Harper's Ferry, and, and maybe tell us how big the raiding party was. And I'm I'm curious, uh, how did John Brown enlist the raiding party to get behind him? His his magnetism seems like that was a great part of him. And then I guess the final question there is, wasn't this just a big fiasco? Apart from what Lincoln thought, wasn't John Brown a little crazy for taking this on? Uh, well, so the question was John Brown crazy. I think John Brown was misguided mm. on that subject, but I think he was anything but crazy. He was a zealot in his belief. That's why I use that word in the title of the book. But he wasn't divorced from reality. He sort of understood that he was engaged in this great project and it involved great risk. But, but to your other questions, why Harper's Ferry? Well, for two reasons. One is that Harper's Ferry was the home of a federal arsenal, a place where the federal government stored weapons. And these were going to be essential to the uprising that John Brown wanted to trigger. The second thing was that Harper's Ferry was the gateway to the Allegheny Mountains. And the mountains were also crucial because when 
the enslaved men, and they're mostly going to be men, he assumed, not so many women would take up the arms. But the, when, the slave, when the enslaved men took the arms that he was distributing, mm-hmm. then they would flee to the mountains where it would be really hard, first of all, to find them and then root them out. And they would establish strongholds in the mountains to which other slaves could flee and rally. And eventually they would find their way perhaps to Canada. But the bigger purpose was to so shake the slave power in the South that slaves would actually lose their value. If slave owners knew that they couldn't count on their slaves being around, then the price of slaves would fall, the profitability of slavery would fall, and slavery as an institution would collapse. That was the plan. Now, it turned out to be, yes, as you say, a fiasco. And this, for a couple of reasons. Oh, you asked, so how large was, how large was the army that he led mm-hmm. to Harbors Ferry? It was in the low 20s. And there were some people who were kind of loosely associated with it, so it's hard to get a, a hard count. But these were white men and some former slaves and some free blacks. And they joined him. Now, one person that John Brown pleaded with to join the raid was Frederick Douglass, the famous former slave and abolitionist. And John Brown made a special effort to bring Douglass along because Brown knew that Douglass had credibility. He had visibility. One of the, one of the big problems that John Brown was going to have was convincing potential members of this army he was raising, that is the slaves, that they should join him. Sure, they wanted to be free, but was this something that was actually going to work or was this a suicide mission? And Frederick Douglass turned John Brown down. Part of it was due to the fact that Frederick Douglass conceived of himself as a writer rather than a fighter, but also because he understood that Very few slaves in their right mind would join this guy because John Brown basically had made a decision that he was willing to forfeit his life for the slaves. And it kind of warped warped his perspective because he tended to think, well, if I'm going to risk my life for for the freedom of others, certainly they will risk their lives for freedom. But they didn't quite see it that way. And so try as he might. He didn't get any volunteers. There were some slaves who were kind of coerced into coming along. But the the whole idea that there was going to be this general rebellion armed with these weapons, it fell flat. The other thing that John Brown failed to realize, and this is something he should have seen, is that Harper's Ferry is an easy place to get into, but it's a hard place to get out of because it's down along the river and there are hills, steep hills all around. And you can very easily cut off any egress, which is exactly what happened. John Brown and his raiders had no problem getting into the armory, but once they were there and their presence was discovered, then it was very easy for the townspeople to rally the militia to pin them down in the engine house until federal soldiers, Marines arrived a short while later. And so John Brown could get in, he couldn't get out. We are with Dr. H.W. Brands. Dr. Brands will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program coming up Friday, November 20th. 
The title of the presentation is The Zealot and the Emancipator. Dr. Brands has written the new book, The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. Again, the, the book is excellent. It, it's just getting wonderful reviews online. And I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about what, as you, as you research the book, what impressed you about John Brown, his, his thoughts and his convictions? John Brown was more articulate than I had realized. I knew that he was devoted to his cause, but John Brown was not a literary person. He wasn't, well, trained as a lawyer like Abraham Lincoln. You expect that somebody like Lincoln will be good with words. But John Brown was mostly a failure at everything he had done before. One of the reasons he became an abolitionist, or at least devoted his whole life to abolitionism, was that he couldn't sort of get anything else right. And so I was surprised that he was as eloquent in his writing, mostly letters, uh, as he is. Now, he was also, um, I, I could recapture some of his words in memoirs and other accounts by people who knew him. And this was a second thing that surprised me about John Brown. I've, I guess that he must have had some kind of magnetism to get people to follow him you know, on this ill-starred effort. But the fact that he could win the respect of people who disagreed with him vehemently on the central issue of his existence, slavery, and he could, you know, in the face of imminent death, he could become this, this figure that drew people to him. The, John Brown was captured, tried for treason against the state of Virginia and for murder of some people who were killed in the raid. Well, the governor of Virginia, the state, the Commonwealth that Brown was charged with attempting to overthrow, came to talk to Brown. And he was almost mesmerized by Brown to the point where he took Brown's side in various aspects of the proceedings. Now, one would have expected that he would castigate Brown and have nothing to do with him, but somehow John Brown won him over. So there was a conviction that Brown conveyed. Now, I have to say, he is an example of the, the benefits of appearing sincere because John Brown could say things that were actually quite untrue, but say them with a conviction that caused people to believe what he was saying. So, and, and I guess it was probably sort of the depth of his belief in the justice of his cause. I have to say your timing for the book is, is really ideal in, in several senses. One comes to mind, and, and that is the important Black Lives Matter movement. And, and you must have written the book and finished it even well in advance of much of this, but it seems that Brown's, there's a quote that, that John Brown viewed slavery as uh, only bloodshed would destroy slavery. And perhaps he was right there. And, and we seem to be at this moment in history in America that it's great dysfunction. And so I wondered if you'd compare perhaps the current experiences that we're, we're seeing here today with John Brown and Abraham Lincoln's times. 
When I wrote the book, I thought of this question that I posed earlier as a timeless question. Mm -hmm. What does a good person do mm -hmm. when his society is engaged in some great evil? And I thought it was a timeless question. I didn't realize it would become sort of as timely mm -hmm. as it has become. Yeah. Um, but one has to be really careful in trying to draw connections between then and now. It's easy to admire John Brown because he was on the right side of history when much of his world, much of his country was on the wrong side of history. So um, you want to like John Brown, <laughs> but you don't want to like everything that John Brown did because John Brown committed acts that today would be considered terrorism. He went to Kansas territory in 1856 to take up arms to battle against pro-slavery immigrants to Kansas. He was fighting on the side of anti-slavery immigrants. And amid the violence, John Brown led a small band of followers one night to a hamlet on the banks of Pottawatomie Creek. And Brown and his men dragged five of the pro-slavery men from their beds and hacked them to death with broadswords for the purpose of sending a message to other pro-slavery elements that if you come to Kansas, this might be what will happen to you. Now, this is almost the textbook example of terrorism. And the people that John Brown had killed, they posed no direct threat to him. So it wasn't an act in self-defense or anything like this. It was this egregious act of murder. So this is not the sort of thing one could recommend. The other thing is when John Brown raided Harper's Ferry, what he had in mind was starting a war. And, you know, that's not something, well, that's not something a private individual should undertake. <laughs> and, and so I guess if there's a lesson of John Brown, it is that you can be on the right side of history and still do great wrong. So you, know, you have to be really careful here. Now let's look at Abraham Lincoln. So Lincoln believed that precisely the violence that John Brown embraced was counterproductive. It was counterproductive Im immediately because it in fact tightened the shackles on the slaves. By striking fear into the hearts of the slave owners, they would then crack down even more than they normally did on the, the activities, the movements of slaves. And secondly, Abraham Lincoln believed that it was possible to end slavery without violence, without a civil war. He observed that slavery had existed in all of the states of the Union in 1776. By 1860, it had disappeared from all but 15 southern states. And it had disappeared not because the northern states and their inhabitants had been seized by any fit of morality, but because a modernizing economy makes the inflexible workforce that slavery is eventually unprofitable and counterproductive. And Lincoln hoped that 
the Southern economy would evolve in such a way that Southerners themselves would realize this is a bad deal for us, not to mention for the slaves. And they would do what New York had done, what Massachusetts, what Pennsylvania had done. They would vote on their own to end slavery. Now, it turned out that that didn't happen. One of the reasons it didn't happen was because the activities of John Brown, and more than that, the activities, the canonization of John Brown upon his execution by abolitionists in the North struck such fear into Southerners that many of them decided that their institution of slavery, their very lives were no longer safe as long as they remained in the unit. So they seceded. Lincoln resisted with armed force secession, not because secession was for slavery, but because secession was unconstitutional. Lincoln went to the Civil War, started the Civil War, not to free the slaves, but to preserve the Union. Now, eventually, his effort to preserve the Union led him to conclude that emancipation must be part of that. But you know, Lincoln, Lincoln understood that any war in which now the count is 700,000 people or so lose their lives, this is not something to be lightly entered into, even if it has the good result of freeing the slaves. Dr. H.W. Brands, author of the new book, The Zealot and the Emancipator. The, the book is wonderful. I'm really going to recommend it once again to our audience. We'll put links up to where you can find out more information about the book. In particular, Dr. Brands, we're going to put a a cover shot. Uh, the cover is beautiful. You did a great, great job on the cover of the book too. I, I can I, claim no credit for that. It's <laughs> well, my publisher, but yes, I agree. It's very nice. It is. It's it's lovely. And, uh, and we're looking forward to your upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Thanks so much for your generous time today. Again, uh, the title of Dr. Brand's presentation is The Zealot and the Emancipator. Dr. Brands, thank you. And we look forward to uh, this presentation, but uh, have a great day and be well. Hope your family's well and safe and everybody is uh, staying staying above all this right now. Thank you, Paul. It was good talking to you. My thanks to author, historian H.W. Brands for his generous time today. Please check out the show notes for more details about H.W. Brands and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, which will be fascinating. My thanks to the generosity of the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please, practice smart social distancing, be safe, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>